0: It's, um, it's a joy to be able to introduce our Exodus series um, this morning. So um, if, uh, if it is your first uh, time here, you're really, really welcome. What a great Sunday to have uh, arrived here and recognize that it can be a big thing coming into a new place with uh, lots of people you don't know. So well done for being here. We would love to meet you afterwards. Um, and if you're new to, um, to the Bible, well, uh, Exodus is, is the second book of the Bible. And um, uh, it, it comes just after the book of Genesis, which talks about the, uh, the history of, of early mankind and promises that God made to key figures in that time. And towards the end, it, it picks up the story of a guy called Joseph, who uh, lots of you might have heard of because there was the famous musical, wasn't there, about, uh, about Joseph, which if you are over a certain age, you will have wonderful memories of Philip Schofield or Donny Osmond playing Joseph. Anyone prepared to admit to that? There's a couple... Jason Donovan, we've got an outside suggestion here. Uh, My mother-in-law is a huge Donnie fan, so there you go. But um, uh, the story of Joseph is that he he ends up in Egypt having been mistreated by his brothers, um, but then is used by God to save the nation from a a famine that comes. As Joseph makes plans and, and food is stored up ready so that they can survive this famine. Uh, and his brothers eventually uh, come back to him. Uh, their, all, their whole family ends up in Egypt, and, uh, and so the story of Exodus begins. Um, at that point. Um, and it charts the people of God who, who end up uh, going into slavery in the land of Egypt. And the story of Exodus really is about how God gloriously and powerfully breaks them out of their slavery and frees them for um, relationship with him. So that's what we're going to be looking at over uh, the next few months. It'll lead us into the summer. And Exodus really it is about four things. And these are the four things that we also use to flesh out what it means for us to be a disciple-making community um, as a church. So the first one is that Exodus is about knowing God. It's about knowing God. So many times in the story, God says to his people, I want you, uh, I'm going to do this so that they or you or he may know that I am the Lord, may know that he is the mighty one, that his word goes. And there's three groups of people that he tends to uh, reveal himself to in the story. The first one is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he's the bad guy. He's the Satan figure. He's the devil figure in the story. When you see him in the text, you're to read an imagery of Satan into it. That's what Pharaoh represents, and God wants him to know that the Lord is in charge. And uh, the second group is is Egypt, so the the nation around the people of God, and they represent the, the world around us, if you like, God wants the world to know how incredible he is. And then the third group of people are the Israelites, the people of God, us, if you like. And what a joy to to know that he wants us to know how incredible he is. And so he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus that we might know him. So it's about knowing God. But it's also about finding freedom. And this isn't just freedom from something, it's freedom for something. Now, this week, uh, my football team, Stoke City, changed their manager. Uh, We stole the Luton manager. We have a Luton fan in the church. It was a little bit awkward. I had to apologize to him. But what we had to do to get this guy as our manager is we had to free him from his contract with Luton to free him for the purpose of him being our manager. I say, ah, I had no involvement in the process (laughs) and no uh, illustration with slavery intended. But the point is... That so often, when we talk about the book of Exodus, often people only tell the first half of the story about how God got them out of the land of Egypt. But the whole point is that he frees them from something to free them for the relationship and the encounter that he has for them and also has for us in day-to-day life. And so we've called the series, He Draws Us Out to Draw Us In. And he draws us out is is what the name Moses means, who's the key character in, in the story, if you like. He draws us out to draw us in. So knowing God, finding freedom, but it's also about discovering purpose. And it's in the book of Exodus where the people of God get really clear on what God's purpose for them is. He makes key covenants with them. He makes key promises with them, and together they discover their purpose. It's also about making a difference. And this is more about God making a difference to them so that in turn they might make a difference to the society around them. But such is our story too. That Jesus has radically changed our lives so that we can let everyone we know know that the Lord is God. So there's four things this is about. And as we look at the story... We'll notice a number of parallels with with our own story. So uh, I guess some of the obvious ones would be that uh, the Egyptians were in slavery in Egypt to Pharaoh and they are freed uh, to serve and worship God. And so also us, we once were in slavery to the things that bound us, our natural tendencies to, to turn away from God. And God has wonderfully and gloriously set us free from those things to live for him. Or it it might be in in the story, there's a time where uh, the Israelite people, they gather a whole load of lambs and they sacrifice them and and paint the blood on their doorposts so that when the judgment of God comes upon the nation, it passes over the Israelites and they are saved. Those lambs are intended to represent Jesus. His blood was shed for us so that we too might escape the, the righteous anger, the justice against everything that's wrong in the world so that we could know God. The Bible says you were bought at a price. That means your your life has meaning, it has significance because Jesus Christ shed his blood for you so that everything you've done could be forgiven and your relationship with God could be restored and you could be freed for the purpose of living the glorious life that he has in store for you. So the book of Exodus, it, it comments on, on a number of questions, actually. And, and some of these are questions that um, the everyday person in, in the street might have. Um, so, uh, for instance, the, the circumstances or habits in my life that bind me, can I know freedom from them? How many people ask that question? Or, um, oh, if there is a God, how is he revealed, and what is he actually like? It might be that there's some more kind of Christian-y questions if this is meant to be our story, what are we meant to actually do as we read it? Or what about some of the kind of really obscure bits in the Old Testament? What, what are we meant to do with those? You know the bits where you, you're doing your daily Bible reading and something comes up and you think, what on earth's that about? And let's say you're in Exodus 21, just, just as an example. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Someone asked you, well, what, was your, what was your Bible reading about this morning? It was kind of about bullfighting. I didn't really know what to do with it. Well, Exodus speaks into some of those questions. And my challenge to us as a church is for us to read it along with this series. We're going to go through to about summertime in on this series. And actually, if, if you pick the book of Exodus up two chapters a week, you'll keep pace with the story and just be able to get so much more from these messages. It might be actually that, that some of you want to follow it along with a, a commentary, so a, a book that's written about the book of Exodus, which helps to bring out some of the meaning. And there's all sorts of ones that, um, that we'd recommend. That The Bible Speaks Today series are very good. But if you haven't yet got one, I want to recommend this commentary to you. It's by a guy called Tim Chester. It's called Exodus for You. And it's a wonderful popular level commentary um, that my wife has just finished reading. I am reading and absolutely loving it. And my wife and I would readily admit we read quite different types of commentaries, but we both love this one. And it's been a wonderful blessing. The only thing she would say and warn you is that if you do happen to be in the early stages of pregnancy, then watch out for the animal sacrifice bits, because it might just send you over the edge. That was her experience. One, two vomits later. Okay, so we are going to get into the text. So it's going to come up on the screen. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, Exodus chapter one, and we'll start reading. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. If you know the Jews, Joseph music, you can sing these, can't you? Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. The very first words at the start of Exodus is the word and. And everybody knows that you're not meant to start a sentence with and like I have just done. But the point of it is that it's meant to link you back to the preceding story in the book of Genesis. It's not just something in isolation. And if you were to read that Genesis story right at the start in chapter 1 where God creates mankind, the language of Exodus 1 would be very, very familiar. It's the I have a dream moment. You know, the instance where everybody knows the circumstances that you are talking about. So if we read Exodus 1, 7, the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. If we then go back to Genesis 1, God creates man. And he says, here's what you're to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, if we want to find out what's going on in Exodus, we've got to go back to Genesis. And in the Garden of Eden that God created, he created man and woman equally in his image. And he gave them, he put them in the garden that he created, and he gave them the blessing of living under his rule. And that's what theologians call the kingdom of God. It's like they're living with God as king in their life. They've got God enthroned. They make their decisions by what God says. And they're told to expand the idea by creating others just like them who live the same way all across the earth. And many of you all know the story, it all goes wrong, humanity turns their back on God. And from that point, after they've been kicked out of the garden, what you get in the Bible is promise after promise of the kingdom of God being established once again of him making a way for us to have him as king in our lives, even though our natural tendency seems to be to turn away from him. But through the work of Jesus, he would allow us to have him as king in our lives. And so come Exodus chapter 1, this obviously hasn't quite fully happened yet. The people of God are not in the land that he has promised them just yet. And they're about to be enslaved for a long time. And yet the language is intended to throw us back to the very start of the Bible to show that just in the ordinary things of life, these people are doing something incredible. They are fulfilling the Genesis 1 commission for all mankind. They're doing in microcosm what God intended for all of creation. They're doing something incredible. We, as a human race, we're wired to live for greatness. We, we live in a society where the extraordinary is, is magnified. People take notice when something incredible happens, don't they? Emma and I were watching a, a film recently. It's a rare occurrence because uh, my tastes and her tastes are very different. I love action stuff. She loves rom-coms, and there ain't too much uh, that crosses over. If you know it, come and let me uh, let me know if you've got some recommendations. It would really help us. But... Um, We decided to settle on a film called Man on Wire. How many people have ever heard of of Man on Wire? We've got a few around the room. Man on Wire looks like this. It's it's the story of a Frenchman from the 1970s called Philippe Petit, who's absolutely crazy but has this dream of doing a tightrope walk without any harness between the the twin towers of the World Trade Center. It's back in the 70s. It's a true story. And as you can see from this, it it happens. He's successful in it. But it's incredible. It's a true story. You can Google it. You see, we are built to notice and appreciate and live for greatness. But one of the effects of the fall of us turning away from God is that this wiring suddenly becomes all about us individually. How many times do we hear it say, I want to make a name for myself? in the music industry, or in innovation, or or in sport. We we don't look to promote the image of God, but we look to promote the image of me. It's it's the idol of self. And yet the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 and the commission that God has for the whole of humanity is that it's the people of God who are meant to do something great. And that their question is not to be, how can I make a name for myself? But how can we make a name for the people of God to reflect him? How are the people as a whole doing? They're meant to live for something great, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. It's not actually that complicated, is it? You can imagine the, 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 new, the new Year's resolutions of 1400 BC Israelite families you know, as they review the year. Are we putting God first in our lives? As best we know how, yeah. Well, let's make more of us then. It's it's that simple, it's not intended to be complicated, but it's intended to speak of living for God in the everyday ordinary things of life and of trusting Him to make something extraordinary out of them. That as we honor Him in the ordinary, He adds up the sum of all we do and makes it more, He makes it extraordinary. And here, Israel were, in Egypt, doing just that. And yet, God was in it powerfully and wonderfully. You know, we will never reach the extraordinary unless we establish the ordinary. And there is a commission upon us, as the people of God, living for the kingdom of God in a different age where Jesus has brought the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God to earth, to our midst, to our lives and changed us so that we can live to enthrone him and to extend that kingdom day by day all across the world that the rule and the reign of God, little by little, bit by bit, person by person, might be extended all across the earth until one day he wraps it up and we live with him completely forevermore. We are ambassadors for this kingdom. To simply honor God in the ordinary and trust Him to make something extraordinary out of it. So that means that you are not just a mum taking your child to Brookfield's Garden Center. You are an ambassador for the kingdom there. You are not just someone who works and walks the corridors of the QMC. You are a representative of the kingdom of God who does those things. You don't just sit in the Trump building or the Artright building and absorb information in lectures. You are a powerful influencer there because God has commissioned you and he's filled you with his spirit to make a difference to live for the kingdom of God. I want to ask where in your life do you need to bring the reality of the kingdom of God? What of the ordinary can you bring something of the rule and the reign of God too. What small steps can you take to honor God and trust him to make something extraordinary out of them? Well, let's pick the story up again. Verse 8, it, it goes on to say this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. A new king arises over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Did not know the role that he and his people had had played in saving the nation. And remembering that Pharaoh is the, the devil figure, the Satan figure, as, as he begins to see the kingdom of God get established through these people, he fears it. And so he tries to, to shut it down and he tries to shackle it, and he tries to stop it. And what happens in the kingdom of Pharaoh. Is that he makes slavery, and as we'll later come on to see, the killing of children, he makes them the societal norm. He fosters racism. He sets taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them. That's their job title, to afflict the Israelites. It speaks of oppression, it says it's ruthless. It made their lives bitter. Sometimes, when we know the story, we can miss this. And you can see the slavery of the people of God as, oh, yeah, they, they went into slavery, but I, I know they went out again. So you can almost see it like a bad secondment. You know, like kind of we went there, it didn't really work. So it we just went, went back to where we were before. But they were in slavery for 80 years. Men would have come home bruised and broken, women would have been abused. Babies were drowned. It was utterly brutal. And this is the kingdom of Pharaoh. Such is the work of Satan. And yet it explains so much of life, doesn't it? I'm struck by the um, the author of the the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. He said, I became a Christian because it made so much sense of the world around me that the world was created perfect and there's something in us that wants that and yet the world has turned its back on its creator and so is in a mess. But he has a wonderful plan to restore all things and bring people into relationship with himself once again. You see, there is an enemy who seeks to thwart the establishing of the kingdom of God. And how does he do it? Well, just like here in our day, he seeks to explain away evil through established reason in society. Oh, you you want to view that pornography in your bedroom? Well, that's up to you. You know what we've got society has no concern with what goes on in a person's bedroom. It's, it's not hurting anyone. It's just you. You think know, that every image seen is a person abused. Every drug taken. It's some kind of criminal activity to get there. Families broken by it. People being degraded by it. It's the kingdom of Pharaoh. And he enslaves. He afflicts. He he makes life bitter. We see it all around us. Two weeks ago, on a train in Guildford, Lee Pomeroy, 51 years old, stabbed in front of his son. It's bitter. It's brutal. Some of you may even have uh, started to watch the uh, the Miz episodes that have just come on BBC. My wife and I have as well, and it's brutal. And yet, there's something about hearts that just connects in with the toughness, the reality of uh, of what it's portraying. It's why when all those years ago Susan Boyle stepped onto the Britain's Got Talent stage and she sung, I dreamed a dream of times gone by when hope was high and life was worth living. And suddenly the heart of our nation just connected into everything that she would see. You know, on my, my way home, I, I'm, I'm regularly driving down the Forest Road West and seeing those poor girls on the street corners tarting for business stuck in a life of drugs and addiction and abuse, relationships that they can't get away from, nowhere to turn. It's why we've got 600 kids, more than that even, over 600, in our city, in care at the moment, and less than half the foster homes that are needed, let alone them being adopted. It's why gun crime doubled in our city last year. It's the kingdom of Pharaoh. It's the work of the enemy. And yet this is the story of Exodus 1. Oppression, pain, bitterness of life. It's brutal. And this is heavy stuff. Now, I could tell you the toddler storybook version if you want to. You know, we've, we've got a book for our, our little girl about Noah and the flood and God judging the earth and resetting, starting again. The book doesn't even mention that it rains. I mean, we can go there if we want, And yet, aren't you stuck by the grittiness of the story here? Because we we have to embrace this because this is the reality of the kingdom of Pharaoh in our day. For tens of thousands of people in our city who are hurting, who are trapped, who have heavy burdens in their lives. And if we want to get good at reaching our city with the life-changing news of Jesus, to know that he is a light in a dark place, then we've got to get good at embracing the pain of people in our city and standing with them and crying with them and praying with them to look at the person in front of us, next to us on the street, sitting by us in the office in the lecture theatre, in the supermarket queue, in the doctor's waiting room. Because if we want to be a disciple-making community to help people to know God and to find freedom, then it happens one life at a time. It happens one prayer at a time. It happens one conversation, one card, one phone call at a time. I'm always amazed by the number of times that Jesus stopped for the one in front of him. Amidst his great mission, he had time to stop and to get himself involved in the mess of the person in front of him and radically change their lives. Maybe the kingdom of Pharaoh is your story too. Its reality is all too close. Heartbreaking stories over Christmas about family members, friends who aren't doing so well. Serious physical or or mental health difficulties that you are battling with or, or even that you fear going into. Job difficulties, marriage difficulties. Well, God's people have been here before. And the Bible does not shy away from these things. If that is your story this morning, I want to say there is hope for you. Because this story tells of a God who wonderfully provided for his people and brought them through their suffering and wrote a great story of his faithfulness in the midst of it too. Because what you need when the kingdom of Pharaoh strikes hard is a saviour. You need someone who provides an escape, an exodus, if you like, from this darkness. A rescuer who faces the attacks of Pharaoh Head on, and wins. Well, let's see what the, where the passage leads us. Verse 50. Then, the uh, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah. When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? I love this. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. When we were pregnant with our first child, we, uh, we got wished the blessings of birth of the Hebrew women. I had no idea what it meant. Turns out this. Vigorous and quick. Emma was less keen on the vigorous. She liked the idea of quick. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. You see, amidst the darkness... When Pharaoh said to shifra and Pua that they should kill the Hebrew boys, they lived for something greater. They literally delivered when they were commanded to destroy. They, they, they provided a literal way out, a, a birthing. Of these Hebrew boys, a safe path, if you like, and they provided an exodus for the next generation of God's people. They brought life in the midst of death. And representing the people of God, they faced Pharaoh head on, and they won. They brought the kingdom of God right into their midst. In Jesus coming to earth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he has brought the kingdom of God right into our midst. He has saved us. He has set us free. He has restored our relationship with God. And he now allows us to live in the kingdom of God, having been delivered from the kingdom of Pharaoh. It doesn't mean that we're immune from pain. When the world around us is still living in the kingdom of Pharaoh, we are not immune to that. And yet we have a greater hope. We know that one day all things will be wrapped up. We know the presence of our Savior with us in the midst of the pain. We know that forever our eternity is secured. And though weeping may tarry in the night, we know joy comes in the morning, as the psalmist says. We are no longer in the kingdom of Pharaoh. He, as Jesus, has exodus us. He has brought us out. He has rescued us. He has delivered us. We heard it prayed out in worship early, didn't we? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Because whatever the kingdom of Pharaoh, Satan, might throw at you, you have a greater hope. You have a light shining in you that he cannot extinguish. You have, as Kathy's story said, an anchor for your soul. And in Jesus, when we trust in him, we become a new creation. We we have a new heart. We're in Christ now. We can live differently now. And whereas once we would have seen the behavior of these midwives and thought, I could never attain to that. I could never live for the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of Pharaoh Because Jesus has changed us, he has given us a radically new and different life. So whatever you are going through, know that he is with you in the pain. And he empowers you to live for something greater. To live for the kingdom of God. And So how did they do it? Well, it says they feared God. That's not just as simple as they were scared of him. It's a, it's a holy reverence. It's a, I consider you to be of such greatness and such holiness and such power and love that I'm going to submit my every decision to you. And it says they did not do as Pharaoh commanded them. They did not do as Satan said they should. They did not do as the society around us says that we should. They did not give in to temptation the Pharaoh's command to them was, was take what you are intended to save and kill it. Take these babies you're meant to give lives to and end their life. It's like take what God has made you to be and forget it, destroy it. That's what he said. And yet they said no because they had a greater hope. Because they were living for something greater. And in honoring God in the ordinary every day, he brought something extraordinary out of their actions. He birthed the next generation of the people of God to continue his promises. It says, so God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They were fruitful, they multiplied, and they filled the earth. And they encountered some opposition too, but we'll come on to that next week. Why don't we stand